Hello and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here with episode 346 and my conversation with one of the professors of percussion at the University of Michigan, active chamber musician with many groups, and Pete's fellow New Yorker, Ian Antonio. Let's get right to it. I contacted Ian to be on the podcast soon after having recent guest Britton Renee Collins on the show, and Ian was one of the folks that Britt recommended to me to have as a guest. I contacted Ian, he got back to me pretty quickly, and here we are, and it was great to have him on the show. Aside from finding out that Ian was not only a fellow New Yorker, but also a big-time New York Yankees fan, it was great to hear more about Ian and his background. Ian's been teaching at Michigan for a few years, right alongside his fellow professor, Doug Perkins, and has kept up a very active performance career that has taken him to many parts of the globe. He's been involved with the Wet Ink Ensemble, Talajan Percussion Ensemble, the Piano Percussion Quartet Yarnwire, and the group Z's, and has recorded over 40 albums with these and so many other groups, it's hard to keep up with. We get to all of that, along with discussions of the Empire State Youth Orchestra, his very specific side job during and after grad school, his love of advanced baseball stats, and much more in this conversation. So here we go. We recorded this interview over Zoom on May 9th, 2023, and it begins right now. Ian, give me a summation of your percussion responsibilities as they are at this point. I'm Zooming with you today from Ypsilanti, Michigan, which is um, it's a little city kind of nestled in between Detroit and Ann Arbor. During the uh, academic year, I'm teaching a bunch of lessons, co-directing the percussion ensemble, um, doing studio class stuff, advising, just like the typical kind of collegiate academic, academic stuff performing with, you know, fellow faculty members and students. So that's pretty busy. And then outside of that, um, yeah, performing with various chamber ensembles I, I perform with. So Wet Ink Ensemble, Taljan, which is a percussion ensemble, and then some other, some other stuff that crops up here and there. Getting the position at Michigan, where you were before then, if I'm, were you, did you come in the same year with Doug? I, I did kind of. Before moving to the Midwest, <clears throat> I, I grew up in um, Albany, New York, which is the capital, like two and a half hours north of New York City. I, I had come down, down the Hudson River to, um, to do my undergrad at Manhattan School of Music, S stayed in the city, did some graduate work at Stony Brook. And Stony Brook is kind of like, um, <clears throat> if you're not familiar with the New York geography, it's it's like an hour to an hour and a half drive east of New York City. Um, and that's a good. That's when the traffic is good. That's when the traffic that's, is that's good. Feels yeah. optimistic. I grew up on Long Island, so. Oh, you did. Okay. Yeah. So I know that area quite well. I don't know that far east, but but I grew up. But yeah, I know. What you yeah, mean. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I have. I'm now forever branded with a six three one area code. Oh, nice. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> so people are like, "Where is that?" I'm like, Suffolk County, but. You know, I only actually lived there for two years. Uh -huh. um, I was, you know, performing and teaching um, mostly, I would say, I don't know, 80 to 90% of what I did 
post graduation from Stony Brook was was mostly elk performing. So in addition to Talajan and Wet Ink, which I still perform with, I was really active with this this quartet Yarn Wire. In addition to those three groups, which I, I was like a co-director of, the New York City percussion ecosystem is you can be really busy in New York performing. I don't know if there's anywhere else like it in the country. There, there may be LA, maybe Chicago, um, depending on what you're into. I was teaching also at SUNY Purchase for the four or five years before moving here. So yeah, that's, that's, where, that's where I was and kind of what I was up to. So tell me about the, the getting the position in terms of what was the audition like? When was it during the year? I, th- I think they had a, a kind of posting for, for both Doug and my positions, maybe sometime in the summer before. I, I can't remember. And what year is this? I think it would have been maybe listed in 2019 yeah. is my guess. It was kind of ambiguous. Like there was one director, un, unranked position and one um, assistant. And I think I applied for both because it was the same application. Um, though certainly more qualified for the assistant one, not having been working in a full-time academic position before that. But then I remember I, I kind of heard quite, I wouldn't say late because I don't know what the typical kind of committee schedule is, but um, maybe sometime in late November, early December about coming to campus in January at some point. I remember being surprised because I hadn't heard anything. There was no like phone interview process ahead of time. And, and also kind of like, well, I have to play a recital. Because I was very active playing mostly chamber music, I just hadn't played any solo music for a decade, honestly. I mean, maybe here and there a couple of little solos, but I was like, I better figure out what I'm going to do. So that was, that was a little bit of, I remember practicing a little bit over like Christmas break and a bunch in early January. Were you pulling stuff like you had done for like doctoral recitals and just being like, guess it's time to look at this again. <laughs> not, not really, because w- what, I want, what I wanted to do and what I ended up doing was I really just kind of wanted to represent like what I was doing at that moment in my life and, and, um, and kind of the music that I, that I am, that I was and, and continue to be most interested in. Um, I think if I had pulled from like, you know, undergrad recitals, I would have played Velocities again or something. But... I mean, I, I love that piece and I love teaching it, but it's, it's probably not a piece I'm going to program on a recital of mine anytime soon. So I ended up playing, let's see, I played um, a piece by the composer Chiokos Slavniks. She's based in Berlin. It was kind of like a, a graphic <clears throat> score that I realized in a, in a version for a kind of 40-minute recital. I played a realization of three... I think it was three or four different Anthony Braxton scores that I kind of made um, a mosaic kind of um, collage of. Um, I played a Joe Tompkins snare drum solo because someone said I should make sure I demonstrate that I can play snare drum. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, and, then, and then I played um, a duo with a good friend of mine, Alex Minchek, who's an incredible composer, but also a great saxophone player. Um, a duo that he had written for um, drum set and tenor saxophone. So he and I played, played that piece. So yeah, that was, that was that program. 
with you and Doug. So how does the, I guess, teaching responsibility, how does, how do things get split up between you two to cover everything you need to cover? I, Doug has a good, a good quote um, that he uses sometimes with like undergraduate undergraduates who are asking questions about the program, like high school kids asking a question like whose studio would I be in or something like that. And he always says like, you know, I've done a lot of teaching, but it would be a shame if you only heard from me. What ends up happening is we kind of split the, the bulk of the studio between us in some way. If you're a, let's say you're a first year undergraduate student, you probably end up seeing each of us about half the time. And then a little bit, depending on kind of where your interests and um, strengths and weaknesses might fall, that ratio can kind of change over the course of an undergraduate degree. And then we're super lucky in that. Um, so Jeremy Epp, who's timpanist of the Detroit Symphony, and Tom Sherwood, who's in the Cleveland Symphony uh, percussion section, they come in, you know, Jeremy's probably here once a week for a couple hours. Tom comes a little less frequently just because Cleveland's further away. People study with them. And then Nancy Zeltzman's here for about a week of the semester, which is just kind of like a bonus. I don't think it counts against anybody's like, quote unquote, lesson quota. But I mean, that's like a all hands on deck marimba week. Yeah, sort of. yeah. And then we split percussion ensemble, kind of divvy up studio class responsibilities. Um, yeah, it's a super collaborative studio and and you know i talked to doug like if not every day m many days so so yeah it's it's super great it's like a tight-knit family does yeah. that include how you both work with grad students yeah yeah yep yeah. there's it's been a little bit different like so brit who you spoke to i don't think she worked a ton no no brit sorry brit's actually a good example because she studied with everybody if you're like, there's a, a, a student, Pete Nichols, who just graduated and he was like, I really want to be a timpanist in an orchestra. So it's like, why don't you spend more of your lessons working with Jeremy? Yeah. But there's also master students who are like, I really just want to play chamber music and like contemporary solo music. So then it's like, well, maybe you don't want to spend as much time with Jeremy on orchestral timpani. That's a little bit more tailored. Sure. Tell me a little bit about, because I've never been up there, a little bit about the facilities that you're working with. Oh, man. Yeah. So I, I wasn't I wasn't here before the addition. And I've heard from people like, oh, percussion used to be in this classroom, which is now like the trombone studio. But we are very spoiled right now with facilities. Like I wouldn't say that to anybody in the administration because we still could use like one large ensemble rehearsal room but sure, yeah. we're, we're like pretty well off in terms of practice there's enough practice rooms to always practice there's a lot of gear which you know the gear does take like constant maintenance because it can as you know it can like deteriorate super fast but yeah it's it's a good it's a good it's a good setup for students for sure like they're not moving gear around campus like i remember um when I was an undergrad, and I don't know if it's changed so much because I think Manhattan School has, um, they've built some new facilities since I've been there, but the percussion, all the percussion was on, practice rooms were scattered throughout the building, but 
the percussion ensemble and contemporary ensemble rehearsed on the sixth floor of the building. And if you needed a marimba on any other floor, you had to take the entire thing apart because you had to use like, you know, one of two small passenger elevators like that never happens at Michigan right now. So I don't know if people even know how to take a marimba apart anymore, (laughs) but but yeah, so it's a double-edged sword in some ways, I guess. I don't know. Speaking of that, speaking of kind of students, well, how, what's the size of the studio and then kind of like the size of the grad portion? Okay. Um, let's see. I think, I think this past year we had 25 students that it, it's always a little bit difficult for me to fully know because there's a good, I would say maybe like 25% of the studio are double majors Mm-hmm. So they're like also pursuing degrees in nuclear engineering or computer science. And they often end up kind of like um, doing their senior recital in their fourth year, but then they're still at school for a fifth year of something. And they might play in a band or an orchestra, but not take lessons anymore. Sure. So it's a li- like the, the math gets a little fuzzy, but I think between 25 and 30 is, is the, is the number. And then grad student to undergrad ratio, I guess it's probably about two to one. Oh, wow. Okay. So, I mean, two, two, sorry, flip that. Two parts undergrad to one part grad. Right. No, but that's still, that's still pretty, that's a pretty high amount of grad students. Yeah. We, we have like three DMA students mm-hmm. um, at max at any one time. So next year we'll have two DMA students. Um, and then we want to have like, I don't know, three, maybe four grad students per class. So that, that would be around seven or eight plus another three. So yeah. Yeah. That's great. At Michigan, when you do have students finishing up a DMA, what's the, what's the final document or recital? (laughs) What's, or is it, is it kind of a, a choice? It's a little bit like, um, see, when I went to Stony Brook for my DMA, I thought it was theoretically the easiest DMA, or I had always heard that. I think Michigan's actually easier (laughs) because you only have to give three recitals. And out of those three recitals, you generate just a kind of like series of program notes. I mean, it's not easy because I think Doug and I are attempting to be like, um, hold people's feet to the flame a little bit on like their, you know, mm-hmm. veracity and kind of like writing style in their yeah, yeah. program notes. But um, yeah, it's, it's basically like a collection of your program notes from your three doctoral recitals, a one page abstract. And then you do kind of like a preliminary oral defense with the committee. You could get grilled a little bit. And then there's a, a final one, which is basically that only covers the kind of like recital box. So you don't leave with a dissertation. I mean, you, ultimately you leave with good recordings of your three recitals and maybe some other documentation, but yeah. We have a student coming there and who's a master and he's going to do his PhD. Oh yeah. Zoo. Yeah. But I know um, uh, Jonathan Kuskowski. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he used to teach at Mizzou before. Oh, he, he did? Okay. Michigan, yeah. So, yeah, he's, he and I, I I've actually, I've had him come in for other classes. I teach a, a career development class here. And okay. And came to, come talk to the students, which was awesome. Yeah. So that, he went full Jonathan, which was exactly what I wanted. Nice. So, yeah. Yeah, is it different at Mizzou? There, there is a PhD, right? There's a PhD. There's no DMA. Um, okay. okay. So, but it's, there is a PhD. So, and that's very much, I mean, music ed, it's a really strong music ed program. There's the masters is basically in, in everything, but okay. just the PhD. So it's, I, it's one of those, I, I do wonder what it would be like if we had a D actual DMA, but we, there was like a, this thing it's, it's weird in the state where they're like, well, uh, UMKC can have the DMAs. Oh yeah. I think there is like, uh, is this, the school system in Missouri, is that like a um, unified system? There, there's a couple of different levels of it. But yeah, the there's the the Columbia campus where I'm at is part of a, there's a four school um, where it's Columbia, UMKC, UM, yeah. UM St. Uh, Louis, Missouri S&T, which is about an hour and a half south of Columbia, which is, is that just a, a kind science? of like a technical school. Okay. So like those are all part of the UM system. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. It took me a couple, it took me like a year to, to fully let it sink in that the schools in Michigan are actually not related to each other. Mm. Like, cause in New, in New York state, it's, it, it's one system. Like every state university is like very, yes. yeah. <laughs> and I think it's similar, similar, like um, there's DMAs at Stony Brook but I mean, you can't get like where I was teaching at Purchase, you definitely couldn't get a, a DMA or yeah. SUNY Albany doesn't have that. Or, you know, they, they kind of like they assign different state like flagship status or whatever right. to certain places. Yeah. But no, the students are, are like so much fun because they're in the process of becoming peers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is like so awesome because you and they're often being paid an assistantship to kind of like take care of the studio a little bit like mm-hmm. figure out practice room problems or so it's i mean it's, I, I love, yeah i love it yeah they probably teach the techniques class and maybe oversee some music, other the music ed. yeah you know let's talk a little bit about some of the other things you're doing so tell me a little bit more about wet ink and where yeah. it began and kind of the composition of the group, what the group's direction is. Yeah. Wet Ink was, or I mean, is, I guess it's probably the most active performance thing that I do now. Maybe Talajan. I don't know. It's hard to say who's more active. When I moved to, to New York, I moved to, to New York city in 1999. In some weird coincidence, Wet Ink was the first like out of school gig I did because a, a good friend of mine, Matt Ward, who he's a percussionist in Talajan. He, he's the program percussion program manager at Manhattan School right now. He, he was at Juilliard before and is now at Manhattan School. Um, but he's also from Albany. And I knew, him, I knew him and his family. We studied with the same teacher. Um, he actually studied with my dad, who's also a percussionist. Um, so anyway, he, he was like, Ian, I can't, I can't do this gig. Could you sub for me? This was in 1999. Yeah. It was just this like strange 
venue kind of on the Lower East Side called the Collective Unconscious. It, I don't think it, it, it definitely doesn't exist in that location if it even exists anymore. But I remember they had a, um, a mirror in their bathroom, which like didn't um, reflect back the same way. So it was like opposite and opposite. Oh, okay. yeah. So that, I remember that being super confusing. And yeah, I played, I played one, one piece on that show. It was like a double trio by this trombonist composer named Jacob Garchik. I think it was two trombones, two percussionists, and two, probably two saxophones. So I played that. And then I just kind of like, you know, stayed in touch with the, the people that were in charge of Wet Ink then. And at that, at that moment, it was not really like an ensemble or composers collective. It was a group of actually jazz majors at Manhattan School that were interested in kind of presenting um, other acts and, and maybe kind of doing performances of their own work too. But it was, it was kind of a loose collective um, at that moment. Let's see, I played a couple, couple other concerts with, with Wet Ink throughout my undergrad. But then when I went to grad school, I got a call from um, this saxophonist composer, Sam Hilmer, who, who was in Wet Ink. He said, Ian, I play in this band called Z's. Um, one of our drummers just left. Would you be interested in like maybe auditioning, performing with us? Come, come check out a show, see if you like it. I had heard them play, didn't really know much. Didn't know everybody in the group, but um, so yeah, I got, I got a packet of music, like shedded it for a while. Um, it was a group that was, and this, I only say this because it relates to that first gig. It was two, two drummers, two saxophonists and two electric guitarists. So the trombones in that first configuration had become guitars. Um, of course, as, as they do. <laughs> yeah, of course. I mean, yeah, electric gu guitars can do so much. The other drummer, this guy, Brad Wentworth, he came out to Stony Brook and, and kind of like pre-auditioned me, I remember, because um, all the drum parts were in unison. Mm. So, so it was kind of easy to tell if, if you weren't going to be able to play with someone. So yeah, then I, I started playing, playing with this band, Z's, probably 2005, I, I would say. I think we rehearsed for like a year. The music was very difficult. So yeah, joined 2003, th 2004, rehearsed for a year, started playing shows. And then <clears throat> the people in that group were also kind of the people in Wet Ink, the, the two saxophonists, Sam Hilmer and, and this guy, Alex Minchek, who I already mentioned. Eventually, Z's played on a lot of Wet Ink shows. Wet Ink, they, we were kind of the house band for Wet Ink activities. Eventually, so this is a long story. <laughs> Eventually, Alex, um, he went to grad school at Columbia University and then kind of like focused more on being a composer of classical concert music. Left Z's, Wet Ink kind of went, it's, it, the, the two groups kind of split apart. I just kind of really liked both things. So I just did both mm -hmm. um, for a bunch of years. Eventually, playing in Z's just became like way too much. It was crazy busy. We were touring touring a lot and wet ink was a little bit more kind of like classical chamber concert music, which I, I think was maybe where my heart was, or I felt closer to the people in that scene. So yeah, that's basically it. And now it's 
I, I think probably since 2009. So I guess over a dozen years, it's kind of more or less coalesced into this group of, of people that are all co-directors. There's a group of people that are primarily composers, but are also like really, really great performers. There's a group of people that are, and I'm one of these, like primarily performers, but dabble a little bit in um, composition sometimes. And then, yeah, we all kind of improvise, play each other's music, like to hang out. So yeah, that's that group. We were all in New York City, but now we're scattered across the country and like just what happens. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty common thing with with lots of chamber groups as they so. kind of unless you're unless you like are you know like third coast where you just you're all there. Yeah. Like that, or or sandbox where you're all there. Yeah. For the most part, it's almost a exclusively becomes a spread issue, particularly when people get start getting full-time jobs, like particularly if they get college jobs, and then it's like you're literally could be anywhere. I don't know who was first, maybe Kate, the one of the composers, but also the singer. She quickly, no, I think Erin, the flute player, she teaches at Lawrence University. Mm. So she moved, you know, like a while ago. I don't know how long she's been there, but she's been in Wisconsin and then Kate went to Smith College. So yeah, everybody's kind of scattered about, but you know, we definitely prioritize playing concerts and doing projects together, like, I don't know, four to six times a year. And then if, you know, if you build a performance program, you can tour that a lot easier because you don't have to rehearse it. While this is going on, you're also doing uh, Tajulon, right? Is that the other the other group? Yeah, Talajan. It's Talajan. So <laughs> Edit point. <laughs> no, Sorry. no, I don't. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I know where that group name came from, which I guess is a combination between Tal, like time in, you know, like Indian classical music and. Mm, oh, sure. Yeah. And the, some instrument called a Lujan, which is some like Scandinavian instrument. I don't know really what it is, or I don't know. I'm not an original member of that group, but um, I got gotcha. you. Because that group's been around since I guess the early '90s, mm. and I'm trying to think like the original members. So Michael Lipsy, who's who's still in it, he he teaches at Queens College, mm. and has just you know been on Long Island. Queens, New York City, forever. So he grew grew up there. Yeah. Um, so definitely him. And then I feel like I maybe don't even know the original members. Definitely Dominic Donato, who was teaching at Purchase, and then I, I joined him at Purchase, and then he retired from Purchase. But he also retired from from Talajan. This compo- this percussionist Paul Gregarian, who is now he, he now goes by River, but he. Um, I think lives in Asheville, maybe. I think I met him one time. And then I don't know who the other original member of Talajan was, maybe. Yeah, I don't even I don't even know. Well, what I think what I was reading uh-huh. uh, from your bio is that it's it's actually a group that's that's larger than intentionally larger than a quartet. Right. It's like which is a very specific thing in, in the percussion world in particular, I mean in, in chamber world. Yeah. But but that your it it opens up. I mean, you you can essentially do you could do quartet work out yeah. of that, but you're also trying to do some of the stuff that's been composed that needs more made like six seven players, right? Yeah, I mean, I think when the group first started, there there was like a 
I mean, it still is like a, a really active percussion quartet repertoire. Yeah. You know, there's all like the cage. Well, there's only really only one cage quartet, but I guess third construction is the most often performed of those. Yep. You know, the group kind of commissioned a lot of like the Julia Wolf Quartet. You know, the, the group the group before I joined it was really active in commissioning that stuff. But then I think around when I joined kind of like stylistically and artistically, the group was maybe more interested in playing some of that sextet repertoire mm-hmm. that was maybe a little bit seen as more European. I don't, I don't know how this happened, but in America, there was like percussion quartets. Mm-hmm. But in Europe, th- there were percussion sextets. It was like Kermada, you know, Strasbourg. Those groups, they, they, they worked with composers on those pieces, like the Xenakis, the Griset, the Burt Whistle, Donatone, all those kind of big European sextets. So Talajan really wanted to play those pieces. I think some of my most memorable early experiences with the group were like performing um, the big Gerard Griset sextet at the Bang and Can Marathon, which was in this, like, at the time when they still did the marathon, it was like in the World Financial Center. Um, so a giant glass encased space. I think we performed it. I think it was like the last performance on the show. So it was like covered in glass, but it was dark because it's a piece about kind of space and pulsars. Now that it's seven of us, it's definitely easy to do sextet repertoire even if one person can't make it or do the quartet repertoire if three people can't be there sometimes it's like who's not gonna play but um we figure it out is there someone that is housing those groups is there a central location for them or is it literally like where are we playing and then we kind of form and figure it out from there oh yeah yeah well with wet ink it's a little bit trickier because we're more spread out it's like I think there's eight of us in the core, the core band, as we call it. And we're like, you know, two people in New York City. Then it's like two people in Western Massachusetts, one in Chicago, one in Baltimore, one in Wisconsin, and one in... And you. Oh, and me. Yeah. Okay. So, so yeah, we're pretty spread out and we don't have like a physical space to go to. So that's a little trickier. Um, Usually we try to kind of piggyback on gigs, like a couple days rehearsal beforehand. Luckily, Josh Modney, who's the violinist, he's a member of the International Contemporary Ensemble. And they have like a space in New York City. So sometimes we use their space and they have, you know, a ton of percussion gear there. Talajan's a little bit, it's much easier to rehearse because we can either use, so Michael, who's in the group, is the full-time professor and also chair of music at Queens College. So we can usually dip into there for a little bit. And then David Cawson, who's in the group, has like an awesome kind of like ground floor. It's like the, you know, Brownstones in New York City. It's like, it's not really a basement. It's kind of like a ground floor, like a foot underground or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So his bottom floor is like a recording studio rehearsal space. So we can use either of those places are really good for percussion rehearsal. So, so yep, that's the, that's the logistics outlook. And is the same kind of thing. Like you do, you try to get maybe like four to six performances a year. If you can, 
that that's possible? Honestly, it's probably a little bit more, more than four to six for each right now. Um, yeah, like I, I was just in New York doing a Talajan thing. So we did a, we did a performance at Queens College alongside the students, like a little residency thing. And then, and then this composer, Matthew Rosenblum, wrote a really great, great percussion sextet um, for Talajan with, with um, the soprano, Jamie Jordan. We had recorded it. And then, you know, that group um, 410, they do a lot of like the percussion videos. Oh, yeah. Yep. So Matthew, like the, the composer had seen those and he was like, I really like those videos. So I'm going to hire that crew to do it. So we kind of went to this like old gym somewhere in Brooklyn and yep. did one of one of those 410 recordings. So um, yeah, cool. Yeah. So I'd say like probably, yeah, six or seven performances with those groups every year. Probably like one or one or two performances a month, I would say. Well, uh, Ian, let's back up. So you grew up in Albany, is that right? Correct. Yep. Okay, and you said you had, which uh, and uh, answers my next question because you I I ask about family, and you said uh -huh. your father is a percussionist. Yeah, yeah. My dad. Um, I mean, both my parents are musicians. My mom taught elementary school general music like in the the Ichabod Crane school district so that's like a more rural <laughs> district <laughs> very memorable yeah like and they always close for snow days because I think there's a lot of dirt roads around there so like everybody knew when my mom said she taught an Ichabod Crane every, like the joke in the area is like oh like do you ever even teach <laughs> just because they're always closed um but yeah, my dad, my dad taught junior high band in the mm -hmm. Albany, Albany city school district. Um, yeah. And taught lessons after school, like at our house. So, so yeah, there was a lot of, a lot of people coming in and out of, in and out of our house all the time. I think it's, it's well known um, in the kind of New York area, but there's like a ton of percussionists from Albany. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask if you knew Colleen Bernstein. I do know. I mean, I know Colleen a little bit. She's a bit younger than me. Mm -hmm. um, but she and I studied with the same teacher in high school. Yeah. And, and I and think the I, same youth orchestra, same youth orchestra. Yeah. Yep. Same youth orchestra, same percussion ensemble. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, I'm trying to think of like, I'm sure there's a list somewhere. Of, so the teacher, this guy, Richard L. Bagley has taught like, I would probably dozens actually probably is a low estimation of the number of people that he has taught that work professionally as percussionists. But um, like a good example, when I went to Manhattan school, I studied with Duncan Patton, who is the now retired timpanist of the Metropolitan Opera. He was a student of Richard's in high school in Albany. So it's kind of like this nested teaching lineage, which is, which is pretty cool. When do, do you start early? That, or do you start with your dad and then go to Richard or do you start mostly with Richard to just kind of form the lessons? I think my dad didn't want to really teach me. You know, like I teach my older daughter or I don't teach her. I practice piano with my older daughter. <laughs> she's seven. And she's just like, no, dad, that's like not how it goes. That's not a C, you know? And I'm just like, well, I think it actually, you know, you know, so I can't really, I can't teach her the way that her 
piano teacher down the street teaches her. So I think it could have been a little bit of that, but, but I mean, he was always around if I had a question, which was awesome. Like, how do I do X, Y, and Z? And he, there was like an expert in the house that could tell me immediately, mm-hmm. um, which is a, a super, you know, privileged position to be in. And there was gear in our house. Like there was a drum set in the basement. He had bought a marimba when he was in undergrad. So it was a four octave muster marimba. But I mean, when you're first learning, having any access to a keyboard instrument is like, amazing. especially at the time, you know, yeah. I think that was less common in the eighties, but oh, sure. um, yeah, like I just could practice marimba whenever I wanted. Elementary school teacher was this, this old Italian guy named Enzo Semino. <laughs> and like, he was That's actually really name. awesome name, but he was, <laughs> he was really mean too. Um, and he was, he was like an old school rudimental drummer and like super strict. He didn't, he played traditional grip, but I, I didn't actually, he didn't make people learn that, but our lessons were just like, you know, only rudiments. Like, I think the second lesson, he was just like, this is how you do an open to close double stroke roll. Mm-hmm. And this was in third grade. And I was just like, I can't imagine how that's even physically possible. But he was like, go, go do that. Come back. So he was, he was a good, good first teacher. But then I, I did quickly start taking lessons with, with Richard, probably in sixth grade, maybe. Maybe fifth grade. Yeah. But yeah, I, I, that was kind of when the, the main band experience was fifth grade. I don't know about you, for you. Enzo Semino, Mr. Semino, was really so mean I, that, this is my recollection. He yeah. kicked most people out of the band. Oh. So there was nobody in our elementary school band. And I think, I, I'm not totally sure about this, but I think that they were like, we need people. So we're going to start everybody in this elementary school, school in third grade instead. Mm-hmm. And then even then there was still like eight people in the band. Almost nobody. Oh, wow. But I mean... It was cool because in fourth grade, I was, I was already playing in band. Yeah. So when you start teaching with Richard, um, I, I, is, it, is it all percussion instruments? Is it like a, like a classical percussion track? Or are you doing like a lot of drum set? What was the kind of focus? It, this is mostly me trying to remember back. I probably don't really remember lessons in sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. Maybe we were playing pieces out of the Garwood Whaley books, like mm-hmm. just two mallet stuff. Yeah. But lessons with him were, once you got four mallets in your hands, you really started playing out of this book. I, I wish I had it with me because I, I could show you. But he has this book that he uses with a lot of his students and it's called, it has a kind of ornate title, like Studies on the Development of Musical Expression. Okay. Or, or something like that. And it's, it's probably unpublishable because it's a lot of transcriptions of pieces. Like some of it's probably in public domain, like Palestrina chorales, but, but some of it probably would fall into like copyright restriction, yeah, yeah. but it's, it's all four mallet transcriptions and it's all basically rolled. Mm-hmm. So it's like a lot of just four mallet chorale, but you know, like with, with moving voices, like difficult by the end of the book, it's really hard. It's like, Prelude and Liebestode from Tristan and Isolde, like a lot of like 
difficult chords and inner voice movement and stuff like that. And, and I don't just, just, just getting the four notes on once uh, two staffs and they're kind of near each other. It's fine. That's, yeah, that's, totally. that's a transcription, Ian, come on. <laughs> it's hard. I mean, it's hard technically, but, but yeah, I don't think Richard really actually talked a lot about technique ever. Mm. I think it was mostly like the introduction and we need to pace it this way. And like, you're going to, develop this theme this way and then build towards this kind of like climax. And then this is the coda. So you want to kind of like make a listener recall that they heard this theme earlier in the piece. It was like kind of like high level expressive stuff, mm-hmm. which I mean, I was super into, you could probably talk to tons of Richard students and they'd, they'd all say like lessons with him in, you know, that age are like really am- amazing. It was like, he's a um, single dude that doesn't drive a car that really loves to teach like that age, I think. So my lessons were like three hours long. Oh my goodness. And it was like, we'd spend an hour working on a piece. Like we'd spend an hour listening to like Dvorak eight and talking about sonata form and then maybe like the other hour, I don't know, talking about like baseball or something. Yeah, it was it was like so awesome for a high schooler to just get fully into it. And and yeah, maybe Colleen talked about this with you about like the youth orchestra program, but and I think this might be changing a little bit with the youth orchestra um, now. But when I was there, it was like you want to play in the percussion ensemble or the youth orchestras plop here's this audition packet and you're going to play the same music that everybody else is playing and i remember my first year i think i was in sixth grade it was like play the xylophone excerpt from appalachian spring play the schumann three snare drum excerpt i remember the fourths in appalachian spring like tormenting me (laughs) and it was like too fast and too difficult but like butting my head against that wall and then yeah richard if even if you didn't study with him he would say like come and meet me at, you know, he, he used to teach at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute and SUNY Albany. So you could meet him at either location. He'd be like, let's, we're going to meet for two hours. doesn't cost anything. Like we're going to go through the excerpts and like this audition etude, which was kind of like a multi etudes, which had like tambourine, triangle, crash cymbals, bass drum, snare drum, all kind of like with counting bars of rests in between the instrument changes. Yeah, it was, it was serious. Really serious. Well, how do you get connected with the youth orchestra? In the percussion scene, it was kind of like my dad did a lot of teaching of like beginner students, I'd say, privately. I think his preference is to like start people. Mm-hmm. And then at a certain point, he would say like, you should go study with Richard now. So he, he just kind of knew about knew about the youth orchestra. My mom volunteered with them. She was on their board for a while and they're still both involved. In fact, my dad directed one of the youth percussion ensembles, not, not when I was um, in high school, but he just retired Sunday actually from, from doing that. So, Mm. so yeah, it's definitely, if, if you play percussion and you're in that area, someone's going to tell you at some point to like check it out or, you know, go to a concert or something. What was the concert schedule and did they tour at all? The youth orchestra, I think it would play maybe a concert every two months, 
the, just the cycle. I, they did tour, but like not when I was in it. I think I just happened to miss the cycle of like European kind of youth orchestra tours. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it was cool. Like the, the conductor when I was there was this guy, Francisco Noya. He was this, I, I think Argentinian, maybe Venezuelan. I, I'm forgetting right now. But he was like a real severe dude with a goatee, shaved head, like really good, great youth, youth orchestra conductor. Um, I think he teaches at Berkeley in Boston now. Um, but yeah, it was like, I don't know, we took it really seriously, which was super fun. I loved it. Yeah, nice. Uh, while you were growing up, were you involved in any other activities, any sports, student government, church-related, anything else that filled out your time? Uh, I, did, I, I mean, I played soccer, and I was on the swim team. I was, like, pretty serious swimmer for a while, but then, like, I, I do remember, like, the high school swimming coach coming up to me one day. I was in eighth grade, so I was one of the better swimmers on, like, the eighth grade team. Yeah. And he was like, all right, like – you're going to, you're going to join the varsity team next year because you're going to be in high school mm-hmm. and we're going to do before school practice. And we're going to do after school practice and we're going to hit the weight room. And I, I remember just thinking like, I can't do this. So <laughs> like just, I mean, just time-wise, cause I was, I think I was already pretty serious about percussion. Even mm-hmm. in ninth grade, I was like, this is my thing. So yeah, I, the sports dropped away pretty fast. Maybe played soccer until ninth grade or Maybe through 10th grade, but yeah. You said you go to Manhattan for undergrad? Yeah, I went to Manhattan school for undergrad. Um, so how did, how, did you, how did you get connected there? And again, this is all tied back to the high school thing. Sure. You were like a percussionist in Albany, and you were going to go on in music. You either went to Eastman or Manhattan school. I see. I don't know why. That was just like what you did. When I was like in earlier high school, a lot of the people that were in the grades above me went to Eastman. Mm-hmm. So like, I would say like at least one person per year from the youth orchestra went to Eastman. And like, I think I was kind of a jerk and I was just like, I can't go to the same place that like the people right above me went to school. I want to go to the other place. Uh-huh. And I'm not even, it's like, it's silly because there was at least two people from Albany at Manhattan school right then. Anyway, they just weren't like adjacently above me. Yeah. Yeah. I got you. So you a little know, space, it was enough space for enough you space. Know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I just went, I went, I, I think I like didn't even audition at Eastman. Cause I was like, I know I'm not going to go there. And I think I was into the idea of living in New York city. Sure. Yeah. Well, do you have a, I mean, obviously you weren't, weren't growing up that far from, from Manhattan, but was there like a, when you first get there, a welcome to Manhattan moment? Uh-huh. Like, oh, this is not, this is completely different than what I was used to. I don't know, actually. I think I just dug it. Like at the time, and, and I don't even know how this happened, but Manhattan school didn't have dorms. Mm. And so all the freshmen had to live at this place called the Broadway Studios Hotel. Okay. which was like, that was on 101st and Broadway. Manhattan school's on 122nd and Broadway. Okay. And there's like zero administrative presence at the studio, whatever it was, Broadway studio hotel. So it was just like 
a group of freshmen living like 20 blocks away. So, and with no oversight, it was just like anything goes, you know, no meal plan. There was like, it was just like fend for yourself immediately, but it was great. It was super great. That is kind of insane now that you explained it though. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely remember like no name, I won't say any names, but our, we, there was an RA. Uh-huh. Our RA was like literally pass out, like blackout drunk in the bathtub the first night that we were there. So. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, it's only, only going to go up from here. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> you know, I just saw that. I think her, her name was Blair Tyndall. Oh yeah. 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 I saw she just passed away and I think she was. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. She, she went to Manhattan school before I did, but like in the late nineties or like mid nineties. Yeah. And I remember that book opens on, Claremont. Um, Mozart in the jungle. Yeah. 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 So that, yeah, it opens on Claremont. There's a scene, which is where I ended up living after there, which yeah. is the street behind. It makes it seem like it was like this, like, you know, terrible debaucherous party scene, which everybody was classical musicians. And I mean, it was, it could get a little bit wild, but it also was like, everybody was still practicing a lot and like, wanted right. To win auditions and play well. So, yeah. Yeah. So what was, tell me about, so who, who are you taking with while you're at Manhattan? Actually, they kind of structure the, the percussion school similar to how I described how we do Michigan also. Mm -hmm. So I was like technically in the studio of Jim Price. Okay. And I did a lot of like snare drum and marimba with Jim, uh, which was awesome. Mm -hmm. And, and then I think I studied with Eric Charleston for a year, timpani, kind of like Hawk Reiner basics. Like he was super, super picky about like just being like really in time. I mean, Eric has like exceptional time in addition to being exceptionally good at everything else. But, but then like you kind of get passed on to Duncan to get more, more into like timpani repertoire and stuff like that something kind of weird happened when I was there. Like the placement auditions are um, not, not screened your first semester. And then they're screened in the winter semester or the spring semester. So they, they do it that way. And the first, I remember the first semester, like my opening placement audition, I, and you kind of get ranked from top to bottom there. It's like, it's not really a list of one through, you know, X, but, um, like you can kind of intuit like timpanist of the top orchestra is like maybe number one mm-hmm. and like last section percussion of the lower orchestra is probably the bottom. So I was like the bottom <laughs> my first semester, yeah. which makes sense. I mean, it was like the only other freshman had been studying with Chris Lamb privately already. He was from North Jersey. This guy, Erez, really super talented dude. So I got my butt kicked the first semester. And then the second semester I mean, I obviously practiced a lot, but I oddly scored like top my second semester, which is probably a mistake or like maybe someone had a bad day or I did something really well that day. But all I mean to say is I was definitely not the best timpanist in the studio that semester. But it was really lucky because I think the teachers at the time were like, okay, well, maybe Ian is 
shows some aptitude for timpani. So we should like have him study with Duncan soon. And so I just kept, I just kept doing, doing that, like playing a lot of timpani. And I, I, I did continue to like hold that position for a little while. So I got to play a lot of like great repertoire with the top orchestra with really great conductors. So I did luck out, I think because of that. Um, but yeah, so I studied with Jim, Duncan, Chris a couple times. Um, Steve Schick would come occasionally. Basically, I studied with everybody. Is, yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. Well, you talked a little bit about the facilities earlier, but what was, how long did it take you to kind of figure out, you said uh, they did no meal plan, no transportation, no like nothing that, that right. That's set up to like a typical college student would say. So like, how did, how long did it take you to kind of negotiate the life part? Probably a little bit. I mean, I probably messed up a couple of times, like leaving my clothes in the laundromat or something. Like I don't. Going the wrong way in the subway or something like that or. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I, but I barely, I, I kind of barely remember it actually. <laughs> like, yeah, I think you just kind of like gain those skills a little bit subconsciously. Mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't have a kitchen for a long time, so I ate every meal out. Oh, wow. Which is, I mean, I remember there was like a deli um, near the school, which everybody went to. And I like always got the same. It was just like, just like a slice of cheddar cheese on a roll with like lettuce and tomato. It was like very cheap. It was like a dollar or something. Sure, yeah. But yeah, I, I don't think I learned how to cook until grad school at all. But yeah, I mean, it was, it was cool because the, the scene at the time was, um, and I think I'm seeing this even more now that I'm kind of like at Michigan a lot. Yeah. That your peer group in undergrad is like the key thing. Mm-hmm. Or like the student, like that really shaped, I think, a lot of who I am as a player now. Like the percussion, the, the group of people that were there right then. I don't think I really knew how to practice Mm -hmm. and I didn't know like what to practice or how I should structure my day. Yeah. And those things, like those are things I I definitely remember learning. Like I remember hearing stories like, so like Mark Demolakis, who's now principal in Cleveland and, and Vadim Carpinos, who's in Chicago symphony. Vadim is still there, but I guess I, I remember my freshman year, someone was like, yeah, like last year, like they would compete to see you practice the most every day and it was between 10 and 12 hours. Oh every my gosh. But, but that's, but I mean, I don't think that was, I think I just, I accepted that as a freshman. I was like, yeah, I guess I should do that too. Right. And I, I definitely do remember Duncan Patton, our first studio class, which is like the kind of intro, like, Mm-hmm. welcome all you new people like this is where you're going to find the cabinet of symbols and stuff because right, yeah. chris was on sabbatical chris lamb was on sabbatical that first year or the, yeah. maybe the first semester he was like yeah you should you should um you should aim to practice 40 hours a week at a bare minimum but 60 would be best mm-hmm. and i i remember thinking like that's insane yeah. but also like trying to do it so mm-hmm. um so that was a cool, that was like a, a cool kind of like lifestyle shock, but also like learning from the upperclassmen that were there. And yeah, yeah. it's like, that's, a, that's like, 
six hours a day, like is the minimum. Yeah. 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 And you can, you can do it at a conservatory where there's no homework. Right. Um, yes. And minimal class requirements at, you know, at Michigan, it's a lot harder because people have a little bit more academic work to do. And, but, it's, and it's a hard school actually. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> but I mean, if you're a grad student, you can do it. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. That's your, I would say with the, with our, their master's percussion students that, that, um, that Megan teaches, I'm, I'm always like your job. Like if you see me in the practice room, it's cause I, I just want to play. Uh, uh-huh. but if you're in the practice room, it's cause you're, it's your, it's your job. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it really makes a big difference. Like the yeah. people that practice more usually are better. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's amazing how that works. Yeah. It's crazy. Right. yeah. You just have to make sure you you're like getting your, the rest of your life. Uh, it's duh. true. Yeah. 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 Oh man. Not always given. It turns out. No, it's not. I mean, yeah, it can fall apart. I've definitely seen that too. Were there other, you know, at Manhattan aside from, and it being a conservatory and, and aside from, um, you know, the expectations, what were other parts of the experience? Maybe it's just the connection you being in Manhattan, if nothing else, but what were some of the other, outside of the school things that made make that experience what it is. I mean, I definitely went to a lot of concerts. Mm-hmm. You could buy, you could buy $10 student tickets for Carnegie, which was awesome. Yeah. So I definitely saw a lot of visiting orchestras. We used to stub in, stub into uh, the New York Phil a lot, which do you know what I mean by stubbing in? I, I was explaining this to a student of mine the other day. And I, I think it actually would be harder to do now. But so we would go to the concerts and wait in the lobby. Okay. Intermission. Yeah. And ask people as they were leaving if we could have their ticket stubs. Oh, yeah. That's smart. Yeah. Yeah. So we would, you know, miss the concerto in the first half, but like see, you know, Molly. Yeah. yeah. So that was, that, I mean, and the first time you do it, you're like a little sheepish, but then you realize that like the subscriber base is like so excited to see young people yeah yeah 19 yeah. year olds like asking for their ticket stub they're like oh this is so cute yeah so yeah it's definitely like i couldn't do it now yeah yeah but but as a you know teenager like someone in your 20s you can do it yeah uh, uh, that's great I, I i hadn't thought of that when i was in grad school we were able to do um we were able to usher for for oh. like a concert series and that was i got into a ton of stuff Prefer, like I, I would, I would have to wait. Like I could, I couldn't go into the show until like 10, 15 minutes, but still yeah. I would like take tickets or seat people. And then that was, was, it. That? was that, was that, that was at UNC Greensboro. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. So yeah. good orchestra. It was great. It was awesome. It was like, I saw awesome concerts for free. I got my wife who wasn't my wife at the time. Same thing. Yeah. We would, we would usher to things and then we'd see like Alvin Ailey and it'd be like, this is the greatest thing I've ever done in my life. You know? Man, yeah. It's good. That's, yeah, I've never heard. I've, yeah, I guess being an usher could be a great, great gig. Yeah, yeah, but that's cool. I hadn't heard of the stuff. That makes sense, though. I, I get, like, I I get it. Were the folks that you were studying with was the intention of the program, or a lot of the intention, to make orchestral percussionists, or was there like a chamber? What was the kind of the what did end up being kind of the focus in terms of where people would go after Manhattan? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it is largely focused on orchestral music, mm-hmm. but but definitely not exclusively. I mean, and I don't even think 
I, I wonder even like what the teachers there would say now. Sure. Like if, um, I mean, certainly they're like specifically qualified for training orchestral players, but there was a lot of other opportunities. I mean, the one person I didn't mention was, so there was this woman, Claire Heldrich, who was the percussion ensemble and contemporary contemporary ensemble director when I first started. And, and she was like, she was really as close as, as there was to a full-time faculty member at school. It was like Duncan was playing in the Met. So, and actually his studio wasn't even at school. It was like on 135th street or something. Like you had to walk to this like weird warehouse to take lessons with him. So he was never even physically at the school or very rarely. Chris was there only to teach. Jim was there only to teach. But Claire was there like every day, all day. She was also oddly in charge of like, um, like if you needed to check out like um, a contra bassoon, mm -hmm. she was also the person that would do that. Yeah. And she was in charge of like getting the heads replaced on the timpani. But I mean, she she was like fully invested in contemporary music. It was like um, she was famous, you know, at least when I was there, for like leaving these kind of like long, rambly messages on your answering machine, like like a good example, and and often for like the wrong person. But, <laughs> but I mean. <laughs> There, it was like hilarious, but like, so like it, looking back, it's like, um, like she would call you and, and it's a little bit obsessive, but like so well-intentioned, it would be like, Ian, like in bar 35 of the Boulez, like we played it today, but like, I think your grace notes could actually start slower and get faster. Like things like that on your answer wow. machine. If you were into that music, like the contemporary ensemble, and she was like hardcore, like uptown, it was like a lot of Boulez, Elliot Carter. All the, the easy, what we call the easy stuff, right? Yeah, totally. totally. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she liked a lot of stuff, but I think that was like where her heart was. Yeah, yeah. If you were into that, like you could play a lot of music in the contemporary ensemble. And I was, I was game. So I, play, I played a lot of that music with her. Um, and I think what just happened over the over time was like, I think I just got more into that mm -hmm. while getting less into the idea of like taking auditions. Sure. Um, so that was, just, it was just kind of like an evolution over the course of those four years. And then Jeff Malarski, who's a great, now he, I mean, at the time he was like, he was playing percussion in the New York Phil like a lot. Um, he's timpanist in the Santa Fe Opera Orchestra in the summer, but I mean, he's mostly a conductor now and he's a great conductor. He became the percussion ensemble director and, and can kind of continued that same kind of like aesthetic stance yeah. as Claire. It was like really rigorous. Um, most, I would say mostly European music that we played, but, um, but that just kind of cemented that like feeling of mine, like, I really dig this. So I, I like how you phrased just, just like, but it's, it's a funny thing to think about. Like her heart was in Boulez and you're like, Holy cow. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like, 
she just dug it. I mean, I remember, I remember very specifically, like, I mean, and it's, it's like, it's both good and bad. So like when I was, um, I think when I was a junior in undergrad, I was like, I should probably like, I think I was still in my mind. I was like, I'm going to take auditions and like try to get into an orchestra. Yeah. I remember taking the Detroit symphony audition when I was a, a junior in undergrad, which is like probably a little early to do that, but, but still it's like, I wanted to learn a big list like that and like travel. Yeah, yeah. To do it. So I remember like, yeah, I came to Detroit. I think I must've, maybe there was a pre-screening round, but if there was, I got through that and then did the audition, but got cut right away. Um, and then the next fall, there was the Buffalo symphony job. So I was, I was, I wanted to take that too. Mm-hmm. And I remember, um, I still really remember, I think I was, maybe it was alphabetical, but or maybe random, but I was the first person in the prelims on the first day. And I remember walking out on stage and, and I think Buffalo has like a gold enameled, uh, Deegan Parsifal Glock and like the light from the stage was like shining directly onto the bars. And I remember they were like, okay, start with like pines first excerpt from pines. And like, I literally like couldn't see the bars. (laughs) And I think I was too young and like too insecure to ask the proctor to like even move it or do anything. So I tried to play it. And so I had to wait and I played a pretty bad round. I remember and I, I remember waiting in some, some lobby. I had to wait all day to find out who was going to pass on to the next round. And I had my mini disc player at the time, mm-hmm. like with me. And I only had the only mini disc player, mini disc I had, had Steve Reich's drumming on it. So I listened to drumming like, I don't know, eight times that day. <laughs> and, and I remember thinking to myself, I was like, I, dig this so much more than the experience of doing this. I don't think I want to do that again. Yeah. So that was a powerful like moment. It probably wasn't like anything that changed my mind, but I remember that. Yeah. Like the, the, the phasing of drumming just like gets in your brain and like it takes you to places where you you just weren't at before. And yeah. Well, so, well, so like Jim, my, my, my teacher was in Steve Reich musicians mm. in Christ. Like he was one of the original drumming people, yeah. all, all that stuff. Um, so I was lucky enough to play a lot of that music with him. Mm. Um, like Nagoya marimbas and marimba piano phase. Like we would do that in our lessons. And so I was kind of like really into that music at that time. And I remember being like blown away by like the idea of phasing. I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. Mm-hmm. So it's a powerful experience. Like the first time you hear that, like that process happen, it's. Yeah. Yeah. So how long after you finish undergrad before you go start working on your master's? Oh, I just went straight, straight okay. into it. And that was, that's at Stony Brook, right? At Stony Brook. Yeah, it was really because of, it was because of that guy, Matt Ward, who I play with Intelligent now. Yeah, yeah. He, he had gone to Manhattan School. And I think him going there was one of the reasons I went there. Mm-hmm. And then he went from Manhattan School to Stony Brook and was like, you should do this too. It's cool. So I did that. Yeah, I just went Is that there. with Leandro? Yeah, you know, when I auditioned, um, 
I auditioned for Ray DeRoche, okay. who was still the teacher there. And Eduardo had not been like named the teacher yet. Um, so I did, I don't think I knew who was going to be the teacher, but it was either going to be Eduardo, Steve Schick, David Cosson, or Tom Kohler. Okay. And I was down with all of them. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. In fact, I knew three of them. I just didn't know Eduardo. So anything uh, similar, different working with Eduardo versus uh, your other professors at Manhattan? I mean, Eduardo is like supremely talented, but he kind of was just like, now that you're a master's student, you should lead your artistic progress yourself. Like, oh, I sure. Yeah. I can help you pick some rep, but like you really should pick it yourself. I don't think I was particularly a good student, honestly. <laughs> okay. Like I probably took like five lessons a year. Wow. I don't know. Eduardo wasn't even living there though. So that was another thing. Like he wasn't there all the time. The percussion ensemble was really serious. Like we practiced a ton mm-hmm. or like we rehearsed a lot, but I think that that was kind of when, like, when you talk about, like, figuring out life stuff, I think I actually just, like, figured out more life stuff then. Okay. Because, like, when I went to Manhattan School, I mean, and this is something that, like, goes unsaid in in a lot of places, but, like, my parents were, like, I had a scholarship, but I don't think it definitely didn't cover my full tuition. And my parents were, like, well, we're going to help you. And I remember them making this, like, decision with me. They were, like, we're going to help you. Um, I'll back up a second. I auditioned at BU Mm -hmm. in school. And I remember I got like a full scholarship at BU, Mm -hmm. but not a full scholarship at Manhattan school. But I really wanted to go to Manhattan school. And they were like, if you go to BU, like we could help you after post graduation, you know, but if you go to Stony Brook that, or sorry, if you go to Manhattan school, that's it. Like, after that's done, like you're on your own. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I went to grad school, it was like, I, I think that's, a, that's maybe when you learn stuff is like when you have to pay rent for the first time yeah, and like buy all your own groceries. Mm-hmm. Like, have so a yeah, was, it turns out. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that, I think that's when I like definitely spent more time like learning about life, I guess. Mm-hmm. While you're doing these degrees, are you are are you able to financially support yourself just playing, or were you doing was other things going on? Oh yeah, I was doing a lot of other stuff. Yeah, definitely not just playing. I I think yeah. I mean, I I always kind of worked in food service mm. in some way or another. Like I worked at like in between some summers in undergrad, I worked at like a bakery at a deli. Mm-hmm. I was a waiter in grad school. I worked at a wine store. Mm. I don't know, you know, just like random stuff, random jobs that were like yeah. flexible enough to not mess with like gigs and stuff. Yeah. I was teaching, teaching a bunch, like at a neighborhood music school, you know, do like eight, eight or 10 back to back half an hour lessons, you mm-hmm. know, drum set in the basement, like ner- never mind just over and over again, like <laughs> teaching, teaching people like smells like teen spirit. Oh, nice. Like that yes. stuff. Yeah. 
Yeah, it was a total hodgepodge. But then the weird, the weird, the weirdest one was, I remember I visited a friend of mine in Manhattan. I think this must have been in two thousand six or seven. He was working at this classical guitar magazine because he was a guitar player. Mm-hmm. And I went and visited him like during his lunch hour at this yeah. like building in Manhattan. And and he was like, he's like, oh, do you need a job like working? he's like, do you need a job? Because like, we need one more person in this magazine office, mostly doing like circulation issues, like dealing with people ordering back issues or like mailing lists mm-hmm. stuff. So I just started working at this classical guitar magazine in 2007 and started writing some reviews and articles and like doing, you know, database management. And then, then the magazine folded the magazine was owned by this classical string company called Albert Augustine, Augustine Strings. And then when the magazine folded, we all got fired, mm-hmm. um, which, was, which was okay. It was like a small portion of what I did. But then I remember, I, so I went to this chamber music festival one summer and there was like this pre, it's pre me having a smartphone maybe. I can't remember exactly. And I remember getting, so I had like no, no job, but this festival was like, you know, all expenses paid sort of thing, except for like going out at night to get, get drinks or whatever. Sure. I remember coming back into like internet service and finding that I had like $12 in my bank, bank account. And was just like, this is really bad. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely don't have enough work, but then, so the boss of this company called me back like two days later and was like, can you work for us in the string company somehow? Cause I think they were still getting hounded by like past subscribers of the oh. magazine anyway. But I ended up working at that company until I moved to Michigan, honestly. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I worked there from yeah 2007 to 2020. <laughs> wow. <laughs> like I would do a little bit of their like, artist rep stuff like trying to sign classical guitarists to the artist roster shipping them free strings or like you know clinic help i actually worked i was oddly the only person in the facility that could operate one machine oh right sure yeah so like i because it was this that's value right there again that's how yeah seriously you got to find your niche (laughs) yeah Right. Yeah, this this guy from Italy made this like custom machine and I was the only person that could meet him on like the one weekend it was installed. And I worked with this translator to like figure out how to operate it. And so I, I like operated this machine like maybe once every couple of weeks because it worked really, really fast. It was like this yeah, machine yeah. that put the little ball ends mm-hmm. on strings. Um, but it was a little finicky. Like it was kind of like you couldn't just turn it on. It was like, since it was a custom machine, it was kind of like an art form, like mm-hmm. figuring out the speed and rate of a number of twists and the kind of lock, the yeah. lock tie structure. Anyway, doesn't matter. But yeah, I did that. <laughs> until, I did that until moving, moving to Michigan. Yeah. So. You literally, there's like, is, are there things that there's a, an audience of for zero for it? Like it might be that, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, who knows what I'm talking about? Literally, I, I'm it. <laughs> that's that's it. Yeah, just me and the one dude from Italy that made this. 
<laughs> oh, that's hilarious. One of those things, one of those things that's great about like hearing all that is just, I know you've thought about this and I know you see it with like certainly other chamber groups, but I think there's, there are times when people might see this rosy view. Yeah. Of what happens. And I always think back to when I got to, when I got to talk to Bonnie Whiting, I don't know if you know. Bonnie. Oh yeah. I know Bonnie. Um, but yeah. I remember her saying, uh, you know, when she was doing a lot of contemporary ensemble stuff before she got to Washington, yeah, I was like, well, how are you supporting your, or who is, how are you supporting? She was doing like all this experimental stuff. And, Tales and, and Scales, yeah. yo. What's that? Wasn't it? She was in Tales and Scales for a long time. I think so. Yeah. 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 All this stuff. And, and she's like, uh, I was a caterer. I was like, I worked in catering. I was my own. Um, yeah. uh, what's the word? A, a patron. I, I, I was, yeah. I was like, I supported my, I was my own, I was supported myself as a patron. It, I mean, it is true. I think there is a big stigma around like non-musical work. And yeah, I think there's still a large percentage of people that would definitely try to hide that. Right. I mean, I think I was guilty of that too. I definitely didn't like advertise that I was doing this like guitar factory work. Sure. You know, although, I mean, it was like super cushy because I lucked I did kind of luck into a health insurance plan through it. Mm, that's really but it, was, but it was very part-time. Sure. So. No. Oh, big time, big time. Yeah. I, I, but it's good. It's good to like, I, just like a reminder, there's lots of ways to make it basically. Oh yeah. I mean, and I think like you, you, you could, like I probably could have done something else. Sure. And that, like I could have taught more or, or like been out of town more, but, but like, if, if you find something that works for you, like why, why not do it like out of vanity? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So no, great point. What's the finish? What was your finishing uh, document or when you finish at, um, at Stony Brook? You do six recitals there. And you, you have like a major paper revision, okay. which comes out of one of your like required classes. Mine were actually, my final recital and my paper were kind of related because I did my paper. There's this French composer, Philippe Purel. Mm-hmm. I think percussionists know him because of Loops, the vibraphone piece. He has a piano and percussion duo called um, Tombeau in Memoriam, Gerard Griset, okay. which is this kind of multi-movement piece and i i just did like a really granular analysis of that piece like how it works super microscopy analysis so that was my like paper and then i performed that on my final recital along with some other some other pieces you don't leave with like a dissertation though okay but but yeah you leave with a piece of paper if you pay your 40 dollar fee to get it Mm mm-hmm (laughs) <laughs> oh that's 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 great yep when you were at stony brook were, were there any other folks still in the field now that that you were were you were there with oh yeah i mean the big thing that came out of stony brook for me was was that group yarn wire we were all kind like relatively in the same well we were in the same cohort maybe not the same like class that was so russell greenberg was a percussionist that I lived with and then, you know, did this group, started this group with mm-hmm. and Laura Barger and this 
other pianist, Daniel Schlossberg, we were all kind of like wanting to just perform, perform music that we were into. And then that turned into more performances and more commissioning and, and kind of like, yeah, that, that was definitely for, for a good dozen years, like my main musical thing. It was like, mm. we had a summer festival that was open to like a lot of people that still exists did it did a ton of ton of performing lots of commissioning recording but yeah that, that was the big the big thing from stony brook uh ian i finished up with a segment called random ass questions okay sure all right first question not random what's an issue in percussion education or percussion performance that most gets under your skin or drives you the most nuts well, something I worked I I worked on with one of my students this year was like leaving behind and and what I called it with him was like the idea of like trophy hunting, which was like playing all of the hardest music you could possibly play to say that you've played it, whether or not you like like the piece or you know, just I think the idea of like technical aspiration separated from like musical intention or I guess musical intention or just like musical affinity or something. Yeah. 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 Sure. Yeah. It's like a check, like a checkbox almost kind of thing. Like, yep. Got that. You know? Yeah. That drives me. This is my Zanakis set or something like that. You know? Yeah. I mean, I get it too. I get it too, but um, I, I do discourage people from like having a kind of like preconceived notion of like, I learned time. Now I'm going to learn Mirage. Now I'm going to learn Bert very, you know, it's like, it's like, it's like ladder of pieces. Mm -hmm. So that can, that can drive me nuts sometimes. Related to that. What do you think is the reason that people do that? I guess the other related to what drives me nuts. I think YouTube is good, but good in some ways, but for percussion, it might be bad. I think there's an illusion that it's like broadened the world of music because you can see so much, but actually like, I think people actually really only see a very narrow pillar of, of music being performed. Sure. Yeah. And I think it's, I think people have this kind of like, um, they construct this body of like, quote unquote, like great repertoire from a very algorithmically curated YouTube playlist. Sure. Yeah. So I think I, I suspect that might be why. Mm. Yeah. I hadn't related all together in those terms, but I, I agree in, in that sense of you thinking that you're getting like this massive swath. Yeah. And we can all just be, they could all be shoveling us the same 25 videos. Yeah. I mean, I love when students are like, um, what should I play next? Like, I definitely have pieces that I could say, but I, what I don't say is go check out stuff on YouTube and mm. come back with the piece you like. Right. I'm always like, why don't you go to the library? Because the library is like not an algorithm. Right. And they might find something that like, a appeals to them, like musically, like right. from the music and not from like a well, produced video yeah i'm not saying that those things aren't cool but yeah, yeah sure um but people have found some stuff that they really dig just from like 
rummaging through the stacks. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Couldn't couldn't agree more. I mean, and that's and it's also it's kind of like what we had to do. You and I had to do when we yeah. were that age. We didn't we we had to actually like or you know the the the, the teacher would be like, here's like five things. Uh-huh. Pick one of these. Yeah. Which, you know, was like designed to our, um, our actual performance level at the time that, that might work. Yeah. Um, versus, you know, what I, what I always worry about on the YouTube thing is, is like you said, if you, you just be like, find something you like, and then they find something that maybe in 18 months, they'd be ready to play. Right, 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 right. But not tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. 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 I found this cool piece that Christoph Seitzen played. It's like, yeah, maybe when you're like 28, you should play that. <laughs> not, not at, you know, not my, not the uh, 15 year old high schooler. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. That's cool, but it's also very difficult. Yes. Yeah. And you know how long it's going to take you uh, to play that until you're 29, actually. At this yeah. Point. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> totally. yeah. That's great. Uh, all right. Next question. What are the ways in your, um, your teaching or your music or anything that you've um, seen or incorporated uh, issues of inclusion, diversity, and equity into what you do? The lowest hanging fruit for that question is just like diversifying repertoire. Yeah. It's kind of an easy answer though. Cause it's like, <laughs> it's like, it, it doesn't take very much effort to do that. But, but I mean, I, I do think that's a, I do think that's a good thing though. You know, like I know that we're definitely conscious of that, especially in, um, especially in percussion ensemble repertoire. It's like, you can definitely find really cool pieces written by a whole, a whole wide range of people. But honestly, I, I don't, I don't really know if I have a good answer for that, that question. I know that I'd like to get more, more active locally here like in Southeast Michigan. And so the percussion, we're, we're going to do a couple performances like in Detroit this summer, a couple more like in the area, just, just trying to like get out there more. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think though that that is a good answer just in terms of part about it, the low hanging fruit, like those are discussions we've had. It's true. Like, yeah. it, it's like, you're like, yeah, I mean, it is, it's the easiest, it's a good, like I said, it's a good thing. It's also the easiest thing. It's, it's easy for percussion to do, which is both good and bad. I mean, it's like, I feel like a, a violin discussion. If we were both violinists, it would be much harder. Yeah, or classical piano or... Yeah, totally. Totally. All right. Some other questions get more on the fun side. What's the most impractical item of clothing you own? I, own, I think I might have to punt on that because I've moved three times in the past two years. Ah, uh, yeah. Or three times in the past three years. And plus we were in a really small apartment in Queens. So mm. I did not have room for impractical stuff. Fair enough. Okay. <laughs> I own a five octave marimbo, which is really impractical though. I will never say that, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Next question. What's your biggest kitchen mess up? I think shaking a, um, it was like a bottle of like lemon vinaigrette or something and like I shook it, but the top wasn't on. And I was like, I shook it really vigorously. It just, and it just went like everywhere. <laughs> like for years, I was finding that stuff. Gotcha, it's disgusting. 
Oh, that's good. That's good. Ian, has anyone ever nailed an impression of you? And if so, how'd they do it? Well, my wife can actually nail a, a pretty good impression of me performing. Oh, yeah? Which is just like, like, I don't do it consciously, but, and I know this on a podcast is not very useful, but I tend to like make a very severe looking face. Oh, nice. And when prompted to like improvise, yeah. I will typically play very sparse and austere okay. styles of music. So like one note. So her impression of me is like performing is like mean face, play one note. <laughs> and you look at that like, all right, yeah, that's. that's <laughs> it doesn't look like me really, but. Like, I think she's nailing, like, the, uh, the essence of, of something that I do. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, awesome. All right, Ian, uh, next question. What's a great movie and what's a terrible movie? Okay, I just saw, well, I saw The Departed the other day again. Because hmm. yeah. I, I don't know why I did this, but I went through, like, a whole, like, watch all movies that have Leonardo DiCaprio in them. It, okay. That movie is a great movie, I think. Yeah. It's got like, I mean, I, I don't really gravitate towards comedies. So like that, that movie is definitely not funny at all. I was like, that's not comedy. <laughs> no, 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 no. So like, yeah, I thought I loved, I have seen it a bunch of times. I love that movie. Yeah. So that's really good. I think it's a great movie. Terrible movie. I definitely have a ten, tendency now to like just turn off movies like immediately if I don't think they're good. I don't know. I kind of thought the John Wick movies, which I tried to watch were like pretty bad. Oh, all right. Even though that's, I think people really like those movies. I was just kind of like, I don't know. Yeah. It was just too much like, like minutes of Keanu Reeves, like shooting people. Yeah. It's a, it's a lot of killing. You have to like really be up for a, just a lot of death. Yeah. I mean, and actually the departed is like pretty violent and terrible, but like, there's like people and storylines. Yes. I don't know, the John Wick thing, I was just like, I don't know. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not feeling it. So. Yeah. Okay. Got I you. watched the first two. I think I made it halfway through the second and I was like, I can't watch this anymore. <laughs> oh, you know what it was? Okay. You know what it was specifically? Yeah. I exercise bike in the basement that I will sometimes in the morning, I'll like ride it for like 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. I was watching John Wick 2. Uh -huh. on the exercise bike and i didn't make it out of like one scene and i it was just like the same thing happened for like 20 minutes ah and it's like i can't go back to this <laughs> it's funny i i actually i thought you were gonna say i didn't make it to my 20 minutes of biking because i couldn't take it anymore <laughs> oh no no <laughs> i definitely no no he was just like in the same like italian catacomb the whole time yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Awesome. All right, Ian, what's your favorite book? I think the favorite book I ever read, I'm not sure if I would like it now, but my favorite book while I was reading it was definitely Infinite Jest. Oh yeah, sure. Like yeah. I definitely like at the time when I was reading it, I was like, this is like the best writing and you know, I was just like really into probably like I was probably like 30 maybe or in my late twenties, just like it was like the perfect time for me to read that book. I really dug that. 
Yeah, I was in a book club for a little while with with like my wife and a couple friends. Mm. That was like the first book we read. The the um the book two six 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 was another one we read. Which oh super, sure, super yeah, I haven't I haven't read that yet. I I I have it. Oh yeah, that book is pretty brutal, honestly, but um, but really really good. Yeah. Okay. Savage Detectives is also really good, but like mm. of his famous books i think 2666 is like yeah my and it's uh you know like infinite chest it's uh it's not light reading it's uh no i, I think that's why we all we needed like support to keep reading as well <laughs> good <laughs> have a deadline yeah 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 no, i got you that's great what's something it's kind of related but what's something in a, on a pop culture sense or something like that but maybe on the obscure side that uh, if you meet someone and they say, oh, I like blank, whatever that is, and you go, uh, all right, we're good. What's that for you? Well, okay, it's, it's not obscure at all, but it can, I think it can quickly become obscure. Like I follow baseball pretty closely. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. I definitely am into fantasy baseball. Oh, sure. And, and also like, um, I think what's like, like stats and stuff like sabermetrics. Yeah. yeah. Like if, if someone wants to talk to me about that, I can, we can chat for a long time. Like I, I dig that stuff, but I think a lot of people are just like, that's boring and like has ruined the game. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You hear, you hear uh wins over replacement player somewhere across the room. You're like, I'm sorry. What? I'm sorry. Yes, I, I, can... I was being called over here. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No, I'm down to talk about that stuff. <laughs> Or like BABIP or something, you know, <laughs> all those like weird acronyms. I want to talk about those weird acronyms. Do you, do you have a, do you have a favorite of the, of these advanced stats? Well, I, I do like BABIP a lot. Which one is that one? Um, batting average on balls in play. Oh, okay. Yeah. It only accounts for balls that people hit that are mm-hmm. not strike blocks or. Hold does it on. count? Does that count foul foul tips? No, it's it's only like it basically tracks if a player is being lucky, which mm-hmm. is like people's babips <laughs> should mm-hmm. be like relatively similar sure. across the major leagues. It's like it's like if you make contact with the ball and it's like not foul. Mm-hmm. So if someone has a really high babip, it probably means they're just getting really lucky. Or it could mean that they're very fast. Oh, sure. Yeah. And can like beat in, beat out like infield singles. Yeah. Yeah. Or else they're consistently playing against teams with bad defense, but that's unlikely. So. Sure. Yeah. Babbitt is good. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. There's a lot. Oh, of that's them. cool. I, I hadn't. Yeah. It's like, okay. Are they always hitting into like the shortstop and third base gap? Like every time. Or that yeah, they actually yeah. hit some to the third baseman, right? Right, <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Vote. Which one's that one? That's value over replacement player. Okay. Oh yeah, that, that one. Yeah. Yeah, I just those are like they have good. They just sound good. They do, yeah. FIP. Yeah. Fielding, fielding, independent pitching. I think is that one. Okay. Yeah. Who's your team? I'm a Yankees fan. All right, good. I mean, not right now, but not now. Oh, you too? Yeah. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Well, they've got bad. They've got bad Babbitt. No, they I don't know. they're, no, they're they... unlucky and not very good. 
Well, they uh, they have too many players who decide that they have to be home run hitters all the time, which I blows my mind every time. My my siblings, I've, my older siblings and I are just like, particularly during the playoffs, we're just yeah. like, please stop trying to be trying to everyone hit a home run. Just yeah. put put some balls in play, please. Oh my gosh, yeah. I mean, it's just who they. It's the people they sign. It's like they. Yeah. I think they can't not be the person that they are. Sure. Yeah. But but yeah, they they could have a better better roster construction, I guess. Yeah, you're. I think you're a little bit younger than I am. Um, okay. But I, I mean, I grew up in the '80s when they were terrible. For like oh a long yeah. Time. Yeah. yeah. Not, not terrible. They were just mediocre. And then, like, if you grew up like five years later, you're like, oh, they're only awesome. <laughs> yeah, I I grew up. At, I was born in '81, so I like. Oh yeah. I was definitely like. I caught the end of their not the end of them not, not being good, but yeah. like really but like your teen years were just magic, basically. Oh, they were so good. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, they could do no wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Even like Chuck Knobloch having the his like yep, the yips, yeah. Brain, brain problem. Yeah. Like he was still I still saw him be really good for a while. Yeah. Yeah. I still, I still think if they, if Scott Brocious took some bats, I'm like, he's going to, he's hitting this out. Like this is a clutch hit. Oh yeah. <laughs> Brocious. So good. Yeah. Yeah. Those, those are fun. I, I, I miss, I miss, I miss not being just like in the playoffs and like maybe this, maybe the world series all the time. It's a, it's a good time. Yeah. Other questions. Where is somewhere that you haven't traveled to that you still want to get to? I, I think I used, I would have, maybe used to say Easter Island, but I'm probably never going to get there just because it's so far away. Sure. Yeah. I've actually, I've been to a ton of places, but I've never been to like a very tropical place. Okay. Like the Caribbean. Mm. I think I'd like to go to like Jamaica for like a week at some point. Sure. Sounds awesome. Yeah. No, that does sound great. Just like pure vacation. Yeah. What is that? I don't know. I, I don't know. But with young kids, like that idea. Sure. Doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. 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 Or, or it does if, if you can, you can, uh, if they, they can stay somewhere else for maybe. maybe. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> yeah. Not that you want them to do that, but just like in the ca- in case. No, I want them to do that. <laughs> 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 they would be totally fine yeah yeah <laughs> that's hilarious awesome go back you go back to albany yeah do that where do you have to eat and where do you tell people to eat if they're there i get i mean i'm usually just eating at my parents house but there's a really good vietnamese place called vans which i think is super good on central Ave in albany so that that'd be my number one place to eat i guess mm-hmm. Pretty good. But there's a lot of good breweries in Albany now too. Mm. So Druthers is good. Yeah, lots of good spots. Yeah, I I feel like it's gotten that we never we went there once I think because my mom had was on the school board and so she had to go to the like the state. Oh, okay. Yeah, and I I don't remember much about it except that I don't think it was very good and this was like the late '80s. Early yeah, I mean, late '80s Albany was probably pretty depressing. I, it's yeah, it's, I have no memory of it, but um, but I've heard it's it's a lot better now. 
Albany's cool. You know, Troy is pretty cool too. Mm. Um, which is like right, right across the river, basically. Yeah. Schenectady, I don't get to you, but <laughs> of those three upstate cities. Albany yeah. Yeah. It's cool. Last couple strangest, funniest, or most bizarre performance moment that involves you. I mean, I definitely did this one, this one long string of concerts with, this was with the International Contemporary Ensemble. And it was at the, the Park Avenue Armory, which is a giant, giant building in Manhattan. It used to be like a, a drill hall for like military units and stuff. It's huge. Right. And they had for this, um, it was like this opera performance for the fourth act they trucked in a hundred sheep every, every day and just let them loose on the stage. So that was pretty cool. Like, I mean, are they like around you? Like, like you, they would just be circling you all or they would be in a different location. It's kind of hard to, it's hard to imagine this. So like this building, it's like going into like, um, like a giant stadium, like indoor stadium sort of, okay. sort of deal, but it's a different shape. It's like a, it's long and cavernous. Okay. Uh, so like, anyway, this was this and Louis Andreessen opera. And mm-hmm. I think, I think the budget was over $10 million to produce this thing. Wow. And the first act was like these like Zeppelins that were like controlled by drones that like went around the second movement was, I can't remember. The second movement was something with like smoke. The third movement, they, um, two of the mini like bands from the ensemble were on these like mechanized stages that went out into like the distance. It's pretty cool. And then the fourth one, they just, we were like kind of in a pen, the group separated from the sheep by like something probably like eight feet high. But the sheep actually like didn't they didn't go nuts. They just kind of like milled about because I think they were so disoriented. Oh sure. It was dark. Yeah, and they just kind of like did sheep stuff for like a half an hour. Yeah, that was pretty weird. It was cool. <laughs> really cool. That's amazing. I don't even I don't even know how to take that. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. That's crazy. Oh Bonnie was on like Bonnie was playing that with me actually. Oh, was she? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Nice. She was, she was one of those. That's awesome. All right. Last question, Ian. Where what one piece of art could be movies, music, books, podcasts, YouTube clips, theater, visual art, poetry, anything has impacted you the most recently? There's this Indonesian composer, musician, gamelan leader named uh, Dewa Alit, A-L-I-T. And he has a newish album called... Um, I can't remember what it's called now, actually, but it's on the Black Truffle label. Second track of two tracks is like my favorite music. I've listened to it like over a hundred times now, I'm sure. Just like on loop. It's like 15 minutes long. Anyway, it's just this like super tight Gamelon ensemble he directs. They're like super virtuosic. And it's like, as as has been explained to me, it's multimodal. So it's kind of like, dissonant in a way that traditional gamelan music isn't i don't know it's just like i can't i can't fully understand it because it's like constantly shifting i don't know it's just so good i recommend everybody listen to it 
so much fun talking to Ian for this interview. I wish him the best of luck going forward and the chance to meet him in the future very soon. Thanks again, Ian. This week's rave is the 1994 film When a Man Loves a Woman, starring Meg Ryan and Andy Garcia, written by Ron Bass and Al Franken, and directed by Luis Mandoki, currently streaming on Hulu. This is a film I don't think I had much interest in actually watching until I'd actually watched it. I mean, are you really looking forward to seeing a film about how alcoholism wrecks a family and marriage? Well, I did just watch this, and I have to say, I was generally very impressed with the whole thing. The general plot is that Meg Ryan and Andy Garcia play a married couple with one biological child of their own, and Meg Ryan's own older child from a previous marriage. Andy Garcia is a commercial airline pilot going through some issues with airline downsizing and job loss possibilities. Meg Ryan is a guidance counselor who has attempted to manage her own alcoholic tendencies throughout her own life. But pressures from young children, jobs, marriage, family, etc. start to come to the fore and her descent into the abyss is pretty rapid and painful. From there, she gets help, she cleans up, and the film moves on. This film came out at about the time when Andy Garcia's film career was on the rise, and it's one of his best performances, and also when Meg Ryan was at her absolute peak, particularly in the romantic comedy realm, and she goes for this very dark and deep film role. Very impressive stuff by both of them. One part that was really great from this whole film is the way that it informs, in a very adult sense, the pressures of marriage and family, particularly as it regards Garcia's character, how he is both saving and destroying his marriage through his actions, some of which are subtle and some of which are very obvious. There's a scene in the middle of the film where Ryan's character, post-rehab, is alerting her husband to the fact she just had a bad day and needed to process that in silence. And he completely comes in to solve her problem that she didn't ask him to and is unable to read the room. And as you can imagine, it goes bad. While there's not necessarily a lot of music that's included in the movie, aside from the Percy Sledge hit of the same name that opens the film, There is a devastating montage that is set to R.E.M.'s Everybody Hurts, a song popular from a couple of years earlier that really hits in that moment. This is a very challenging movie, and it has moments that get on the manipulative side, but overall, it's very good. Featuring supporting turns from Ellen Burstyn as Ryan's mother, Philip Seymour Hoffman in an early role as a fellow alcoholic rehab person, LaTanya Richardson-Jackson as the primary doctor at the alcoholic rehab, and Tina Margarino as the older daughter. Check out When a Man Loves a Woman, if, you know, you're up for it. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Beats Percussion Podcast. 
You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete's Perk Pod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time. Until then.